Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 55. I'm your host and my name is Dan Holzman. We have a very special guest on this podcast, one of my favorite comedy jugglers of all time, Daniel Rosen. Daniel's amazing, but before we get to Daniel and his wonderful stories, let's thank our sponsors, starting with International Jugglers Association. Their initials are IJA, and they can be found at juggle.org. Who are the IJA? What do they do? They're a great group of jugglers, and one thing they do is a fantastic festival every summer. So check it out this year. It's going to be in Springfield, Massachusetts, July something through something else, and I'm sure it'll be great. Don't really have the details in front of me. That's why you need to go to juggle.org. Hey, let's thank Zing Toys, makers of the Zing Dama, the LED version of my toy called the Ring Dama. You can find out about the Zing Dama at zing.toys. All right, one more new sponsor is my new book called 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act for Jugglers and Other Variety Artists. This is a book of tips I've put together over the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, collecting tips from my friends and fellow colleagues about performing, about business, about travel, and you can get those at Amazon.com. 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act Collected and compiled by Daniel Holzman. So, hope you enjoy that while you're playing with your Zing Dama and listening to Daniel Rosen. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast number 55. A very special guest, Mr. Daniel Rosen. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Hello, hello. (laughs) Dan may be my oldest friend in the world. You and I go back many, many years without dating ourselves. Of course, we never dated. Was it 35 years, would you say, or more? I I think more. I think it was in the 1970s. And, you know, I'm lucky enough where some people say I'm an inspiration to them or whatever. But you, my friend, are my inspiration. When I used to see you, you know, on the streets of Westwood with the, with the infamous Edward Jackman. Yeah. It changed my life. Yeah, Edward and I met in the Boy Scouts. I was 11 at some kind of scout jamboree and he was juggling sticks, three sticks. And I'd never seen anyone juggle sticks. I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Was he about about the same age around then, 11? He was a couple years, I was 11. I think he was maybe 13 or 14, which made him really old. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was always older than you. That, That probably stayed the same his whole life, yeah, okay. Yeah, but we started doing shows together on the streets. Initially, I learned how to juggle at 10 from Martin Gray, who right, was right. the he was the president of the IJA, and he had a juggling school booth at the Renaissance Fair in L.A., and I went there, and I paid him a dollar to learn how to juggle, and I was so terrible, I was the only guy that he couldn't teach. I spent the whole day there, and I was just terrible, terrible. And then I went home and I made my own beanbags because I couldn't afford them. I mean, I think his were $2 each, and that was out of my budget. So what I went made home. you so terrible? Were you just naturally uncoordinated? or Before that, I was into magic, but magic was really expensive, and I thought juggling would be a lot cheaper. But I got some book, and it I thought it was telling me to do them in a circle, and I couldn't get past two. And then it was just a mess. Yeah, if you ever taught anybody to juggle and they're trying to do it in a circle like in a cartoon, yeah, you can't teach them. So I went home and I just started practicing and practicing and practicing. And then almost a year later, I ran into Martin Gray. By then I was 11. 
And I said, hey, remember me? And he did remember me because I was the one kid who couldn't learn. I said, look at what I can do now. And I started doing them under my legs and behind my back and claws and everything. And he said, you want a job? And he gave me a job at the Renaissance Fair teaching juggling in his juggling school booth. And then I started, I wanted to emulate him. I think he was, I'd say he was my first mentor. I did everything he did. I, I did his exact act. And then I followed him to the County Art Museum, and that's where I ran into Edward again. I didn't even remember he was the guy I had met at the Boy Scouts. I remember that later on, and we started doing shows together. Then we met up with Peter Davidson, John Luker, Jim Ridgely. And for a while, the five of us were the L.A. Juggling Company, and then it dwindled down to just Edward and I for a long time. That was quite a quite a row of uh, performers because all those guys pretty much went on to solo careers. Jim yeah. Ridgely, John Luker. Yeah. Uh, and certainly uh, Edward went on to a really great solo career. So the other guys peeled away, and you and Edward, you worked together for how long? I don't know. It was like a... <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll know. From you. I don't know your situation with Barry. You guys always seem to get along, but Edward and I never got along. So was it the age thing? Was he always like sort of the boss because he was older? Or was it just his natural sort of bossy tendencies? Maybe. We were just oil and vinegar, and our fights would work into the show. I remember at one point we got in a fight about laundry in the middle of a show on the street in New York City, and I walked away, and I didn't see him for over a year. <laughs> <laughs> and the fight was about laundry. Um, I don't know, but it would it would make this crazy show, and it worked. Um, <laughs> but you, had, you, you started at the museum, and you sort of went out to West, we started doing the street stuff. Yeah. What kind of like actual jobs did you guys get? Not any real ones for a long time. It was mostly street stuff and Renaissance Fair and just silly, horrible gigs. <laughs> I remember, though, you guys got on some kids' show. We were all kind of jealous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We what were on kids are, kids are People too, and Sister Sledge was on, and We Are Family was their big hit, and Scott Baio was on. And it was, well, this was definitely in the 70s. And yeah, we did our, they discovered us on the streets of Westwood and flew us out there. And we shot that in New York. That was the first TV show professional thing. Um, Would you say your act was primarily club passing? Yeah, club passing and fights. <laughs> and fights about laundry and whatever. I don't know takeaways and stuff and i remember banjo playing oh yeah that's right that's right i did that back then i would play the banjo and he would juggle uh, in fact we did that on the john davidson show who was also popular in the 70s well what people don't understand i guess is back in the day like before the internet being on tv was a big deal it was a huge deal because there were only like three channels yeah so a show like john davidson who people are even like who's john davidson oh yeah or if you did a tonight show you could be a huge star overnight if you did well on The Tonight Show. But by the time I did it, it didn't mean anything. It was good on your reel. Maybe it was good for the corporates, but it didn't yeah. have that bump like, oh my God, right. a star was born overnight. Right. And at this point, you have it on your reel. It makes you look really, really old. <laughs> like the guys that used to, I remember starting out, there'd be guys that had Ed Sullivan on their reel, which I always thought was really cool, but definitely it made you look old. 
Unless you're on as a, like a child, like Albert Lucas was probably on when he was like five. Oh yeah, wow, Albert was amazing. We used to go and watch him with our little Hi8, was it Hi8? Whatever that kind of camera that you'd have, it could only shoot like two minutes. So we'd have to like, we'd wait for hours to, to get there and you know, the whole thing and have that camera ready and then shoot like two minutes of his act and then miss part of it while we're trying to switch the reels. And those were the guys. It was like Dick Franco. Oh, yeah. Kit Summers had these little films on everybody, so we would just study them. I remember watching Ignatov over and over and over to watch how he did Five Club Backcrosses because nobody did it back then. In fact, I think uh, here in L.A., I think we were some of the first ones who ever did that stuff. I think by we, you should say that by you because you were one of the first people to do Five Club Backcrosses, and you no, were I way ahead of the curve. I remember... Peter Davison working on yeah, like we yeah. would all we would all well I would ditch school they were all older than me I would take the bus three hours to get to UCLA where we would practice every day for hours and hours so you practice with Peter Davidson John Luker Jim Ridgely Edward we were there almost every day at UCLA in the gym now how'd you get into UCLA was was one of the a student there or you sneak in or no we would just kind of go there and then they it just, it was so weird that we were juggling that it seemed like we belonged. <laughs> so you're practicing during the day, you're hitting Westwood, which was sort of a local college town, you'd say. Yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of things about Westwood. I think the, the Hare Krishna were probably one of the most interesting dynamics. Because didn't oh. they take over at a certain point? Well, yeah. I, there was this, a corner that I sort of tried to control for many years, uh, from about the age of 15 to 18, I would fight everybody off that corner, including the Hare Krishnas. I'd get the audience to uh, lock arms to keep them off the corner, and <laughs> it was a fight, because everyone went to that corner. It was the best corner. I remember even some Hare Krishna material kind of worked its way into your act. It's oh, of... lots of it, yeah. <laughs> was, was there Hare Krishna, shrunken Hare Krishna heads, or...? Hare Krishna heads, I don't remember. Was that when I ate the apple? Uh, of course, I remember the Swiss Army cap, but we'll get into that, that later. Sure. There's a lot of crazy stuff still to come. Yeah. In the... yeah, there I am on the streets in Westwood. For a little while, it was with Edward. Then it was just myself. And I would initially, it was illegal to street perform there, so I taught myself how to ride this tall unicycle because just because the crowd would get so big, I couldn't see if the police were coming. So that's why that ended up being my closer, because I could see if the police were coming. And then I got this crazy idea. I wanted to do something big time off the street, but I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just a kid. I'm, I think I was 17 at this time, maybe 16. I thought, I, I want to do something big time, but I'm too young to work in Vegas. They'd never let me work there. I don't want to be in the circus because that would be gross. So I thought, oh, ice capades. Albert Lucas has been in the ice capades. He's been there long enough. They need me. That's this idea I got. I don't know why, <laughs> but... I remember this, though, yeah. Yeah, so then I went to the skating rink that used to be in Santa Monica, and I said, I'd like to have ice skating lessons because I want to be in the ice capades. They said, have you ever ice skated before? I said, no. <laughs> they thought I was crazy. But it happened to be the home rink of the ice capades, and I ended up getting this great coach named Donna Atwood, who had been an Olympic champion, 
and she had been a big star of the Ice Capades in the 1950s and was married to their founder. And I, it just was like dumb luck that I ended up in the perfect rink in the country with the perfect coach. And I started training every day. So every day I would train ice skating three or four hours and I'd train juggling eight hours. And I had this really, really complicated act with uh, you know five clubs and five torches. I'd have to I, the the torches had double wicks, so it was so much fire. I had to skate backwards, or I wouldn't burn my face off. And I started doing all this stuff. And then when it got to practice, when I got good enough at the skating after a couple years of this, it was time for me to start practicing my act. And I got out the fire. And, you know, people are having their lessons and doing this and doing <laughs> that, and they freaked out. And they said, you can't do that. You can't have fire in here. And I go, well, I, I'm going to be in the ice capades. I have to do this. And they said, well, you got to rent the rink. And renting the whole rink was $65 an hour. And that was more money than I'd ever seen. Because at this point, I was still a street performer. I don't think I even had a car. I had a moped. I'd strap all this crap to the back of it to go do shows. And I was just barely surviving. And I said, so then I said, I can't afford that. Can, can you give me a job? They said, no. I said, no, you don't even have to pay me. Just let me use the rink when no one's skating. And they said, no. <laughs> You were committed, Dan. You were committed. Yeah, I was really committed. So uh, what I did, they kept saying no, and I, I had to be in the ice capades. They didn't understand. I, my life was going to be over. So here's what I did. I made friends with the night manager, and the night manager hated his job. He hated his life. He just wanted to get drunk or high and pass out. And so I would help him with that. <laughs> I'd show up late at night, like one in the morning. I'd do all of it. I'd, I'd bring him, you know, uh, bottles of wine or whatever I could find so he could pass out. And then I'd run the Zamboni machine, put all the hockey equipment away. And then I'd practice from like two to four in the morning every single night. Crazy. Yeah. And then after a year of that, it was time for my audition. And they auditioned people at like seven in the morning. It was crazy. I had made myself a handmade like spandex suit. And I had this really technical juggling act, all the music with all the fire and all the spandex and the spanglies. And then I did my act and they go, oh, that's pretty good. We think we want you, but you can't use any of that music. I went, what do you mean? They said, oh, well, uh, people own the rights to it, but we don't worry. We brought this guy with us. He's going to make this exact music. It'll sound the same. You won't know the difference, but we'll own it, and we want to see the act again in a month. And I said to the guy, well, how long will that take for you to make that music? He said, oh, I'll have it ready in a week. And then a week went by, and two weeks went by, and three weeks, and finally it's the day before my next audition. Right. And he, he goes, oh, here's your music. And it was nothing like my music. And all my stuff was timed out. And, I mean, the music would go up and the torch would go up. And, it, you know, and it was not my music. And I thought, well, I have to be in the ice capades, so I got to do it. And I did the audition the next day to this music I didn't know. And I think I, I dropped everything maybe five or six times and I fell three times and it was just the most disastrous thing and I, my life was over because I wasn't going to be in the ice capades. I really blew it. And then that weekend, I'm there walking down the board. Oh, no, I'm there setting up in Venice Beach to do a show. And all of a sudden, I look down the path and I see 
Bob Turk, who was the producer of the Ice Capades that I'd blown the audition uh, the day before. And and so I hid behind a tree. And had he said anything afterwards? Had he said that you had blown it? I mean, had, he, had you talked to him when you were done? No, no, no. But here's what happened. I see him and I hid. I hid behind a tree. I didn't want him to see him because I had made up these stories that I was working in Vegas and doing all these big things. <laughs> and I didn't want to know I was a street performer. So I hid. And then like 45 minutes later, I came out. I thought he's long gone. I'll do my act. I drew the big crowd. And then at the very end, I got on my unicycle and there he was in the audience. And I thought, oh, God, not only did I blow the audition, but now he sees I'm a street performer. I lied. I'm not doing all these big Vegasy things and stuff. And I was so depressed. I went home and my life was over. I wasn't going to be in the ice capades. And then Monday, he calls me and he says, hi, this is Bob Turk. And I go, hi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you thought he was going to bust on you for, for well, telling him that you are in Vegas? Or? Well, he said, you know, that, that I didn't know what was going to happen. I just thought he was going to yell at me. And he said, you know, that really complex juggling act to music in the spandex and everything, um, I hated that. But that comedy thing you did at the beach, that's what we want. So I ended up getting hired to do this whole different thing than I ever planned on. Uh, and that I had practiced for those years. And I ended up being in the Ice Capades for a year. And I was the popcorn vendor, yeah. saves the show when the juggler doesn't show up. And the lovely assistant is there. And I'm in there with my popcorn boxes and, I, and Cokes. And I start juggling them in the audience. And I go, hey, where's your famous juggler? And she goes, I don't know. And I go, well, I can juggle too. Look. And I even got my skates on. <laughs> How about it, folks? You want to see me? And they'd cheer, and then I'd go down there, and then I'd start trying to ride this unicycle with spikes in the tire. And then I'd grab her by the hair accidentally, and then it would come off. Because it was just like that little kind of strange thing they put under the wig. Right, right. And then she'd go, hey, wait a minute. I know you. I've seen you backstage. And she'd rip my coveralls off, and then I'd have the flashy spandexy uh, thing with the rhinestones and mirrors. And then I do all the flashy fire stuff. It was pretty cool. I remember, I don't know if I ever saw you live, but I certainly saw a video. So I remember you were in the audience selling your popcorn. You yeah. had a microphone, right? You're like, yeah, hey, have yeah, my microphone. Yeah, I wish I had that tape. I haven't seen that in a million years. And this I, I saw it 30, 30 years ago or something. Wow. Well, anyway, so my thinking as a kid, I thought this would be a really positive environment because I'll be with athletes and they were the meanest people. They were, I guess, well, Albert had, had and, and by the way, Albert and his brother, David Lee, they're awesome jugglers, and they, Ice Capades had three companies, so I didn't really replace anybody. And I spent a lot of time with David Lee, just amazing. And I guess he had this competition going with all the skaters, and they would always give him a hard time if he ever dropped anything. So they would give me such a hard time, and I, it would psych me out. <laughs> it, was a, it was a strange thing. They, they, they were also all kind of alcoholics and drug addicts, so it was kind of a weird environment. But so during that year, I thought, wow, this was really kind of a terrible thing to push for for all these years. And then I realized, hey, comedy is what I really like. So I started just writing comedy, and that's what I, would, I do every night. Can you remember you telling me that there was like 
was buses and it was pretty awful. I remember oh, the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really happy. No, you, the bus rides, we'd leave at about six in the morning to the go to the next town and everyone would have a bottle of scotch. So if you could drink enough scotch to just pass out, then you wouldn't be so uncomfortable and sore at the end of the ride in the next town. So that's how they lived. Yeah. There was one guy who would do backflips. And one night he said, watch my number. I'm on acid. <laughs> <laughs> and he went out. Sure enough, he did his two backflips. It was amazing. <laughs> but this is how they were. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they were not very professional. I did my year in the ice capades and it was really good experience because I learned to project in giant stadiums. So then any smaller place, I think that helped me with presence. Yeah, you'd say your comedy was big. Like you did big comedy. You were the image, the the props, your your attitude on stage. It was it was big. Yeah, that became intensified later after Sugar Babies. There was a comedian in Sugar Babies that, the name Mickey Deems that I started to emulate. I just loved him so much. He was an old vaudeville guy. I remember the hair got bigger and bigger and higher and higher. and the Yeah, and the talking was just became so exaggerated. Uh, Mickey Deems would be like, I've been fishing on this pier all day. Or he'd go, these pants remind me of the Biltmore Hotel. And then someone would go, why is that? And he'd go, no ballroom. <laughs> so it was that kind of delivery. It was so over the top. And with the speech got more and more accentuated. And for me, I, I sort of, I, I don't know, people sometimes become their act. Do you ever see that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you sort of your mannerisms on stage, so they blend into your personal life. And you start dressing yeah. the same as you are on stage and stuff. Yeah. You know who I love to watch? Uh, besides you guys, of course. Um, you know, who was probably the biggest influence on me was Michael Davis. Well, yeah, that's, I think that's maybe 90% of the comedy juggers will say he was the guy. His yeah, delivery, he was the his, guy. But no, he was in Sugar Babies. Let's get back to your first comedy gigs. You're out of the ice capades. How did oh, you segue into the comedy thing? Well, I, I went and auditioned at the improv and I got lucky that they liked me. And I, I only had to audition once and I started getting lots of spots. And then I started working in comedy clubs, and because I had an act already, then I didn't have to be the MC or the opening act. So I automatically kind of got to skip over and be in the middle because they hire a lot of inexperienced comedians that open the show, and then the headliner. And then I just kept building and adding more weird props and stuff. And the Swiss Army Cat, I, I, I made that for The Tonight Show. Johnny Carson hated cats. So wait, let's go back. Look, let's go back a little bit. So you're doing comedy clubs. Did you? Yeah, did yeah. Jim McCauley see you? How did you get your spot on the Tonight Show then? Oh, that was weird. I kept trying and kept trying. Uh, they knew me since I was on the street corners, but they, he just he would say, "No, you're not ready." And then he'd say, "You know, when you're ready, we'll know about it. We'll know about it." And I kind of put it out of my head for a while. And then one day he said, "You're ready." just out of the blue. He heard. He was a big, big drinker. And I think it's safe to say this, because I don't think he's around anymore. No, uh, he passed many years ago. Yeah, 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 but he actually bought a house a couple doors down from the improv so that he could stumble home drunk. And he came to see me to see my spot. I had worked on my spot. It was the first spot on the... I did a Tonight Show a couple times. 
the first one was a New Year's Eve spot, which is a weird spot because they didn't know how long to give me. So they said, prepare a four-minute version, uh, a six-minute version, an eight-minute version. And so I even prepared a two-minute version. They didn't tell me to, but luckily I did. But here's what happened. I kept saying, can he come see my spot? Can he come see my spot? And he wouldn't come. And then he waited until the day before. And then I finally did my spot that I had been working on, the perfect, I don't know, six minutes. And he was drunk out of his mind. He just reeked of booze. And he's slurring his words. And he goes, oh, you can't do that on The Tonight Show. I went, what? Because <laughs> by then, it has been this old buildup. Right, right. longer than the ice capades. He said, no, on The Tonight Show, you got to open with your closer. And I went, what? <laughs> and after all this rehearsing, he wanted me to turn my act inside out so that I would open with the closer and close with the opener. So it was like all backwards. And I had practiced it over and over and over and over. I went home and I cried. I was so upset. What were the routines and what, was, what order did he want you to do? He wanted it the reverse. What was the closer and what was the opener? And I don't even remember. The Swiss Army cat was in there somewhere. I did three and four clubs, maybe five. I did the, the um, Bobby May finish with the four clubs. I don't know. Whatever it was, he wanted it backwards. I cried. I was so upset. Oh, and then I thought, okay, well, he was really drunk. He's not even going to remember. But when I got there, he remembered everything. And I had to do my act backwards. And you know what? He was right. He was absolutely right because the closer grabbed Johnny and it didn't matter what the audience thought. All that mattered was what Johnny thought. And it worked. He knew better than me. Yeah, he was Jim McCauley for a reason. I mean, yeah, yeah. He had that role for as the talent booker for the Tonight Show for so many years and he was so revered. Yeah. And, and feared and, and loved and, and, and all those things together because he had so much power in people's careers. Yeah, mostly feared. But he was no slouch. No, no. So he really knew. He knew way better than me. And uh, for years, I've always used that line, you got to open with your closer. It like has become my mantra in everything, even in business. It's really something. That first impression, like, you know, oh, like with yeah. Johnny Carson, you got to catch him quick. You, you got to get his attention right off the bat. Yeah. You got to have the best stuff up front because then you can coast after that. That's why they would always put the biggest star in the first slot, you know, the Jimmy Stewart slot. Right, right. Yeah. So I did The Tonight Show a few times, and then I got my own show opposite The Tonight Show. And that I was the co-host of, and I was the announcer also. I was like the Ed McMahon. And we'd get to do comedy bits every night. It was really neat because I'd get there in the morning, and I had an office, and then whatever I thought of that day would be on TV that night. And if I thought of a cool prop, I could say, hey, can the prop department make this? I remember one of those was a, I wanted a Spuds, Spuds McKenzie skin rug. Oh, the dog, Spuds The dog McKenzie. from that beer commercial. And boom, some guys made it, and there it was in my office an hour later. That's a funny idea, too. It was wild. It was really fun, but it was the beginnings of Fox, and they, they later on became very cutting edge, but they were really afraid of the one of the guys that was the host, there were a couple different hosts that would trade off and on and off, and I would that was the host to each of them. And the one who was the better one, uh, he was a little too dangerous for the times, 
and and they got scared and they ended up pulling the plug on the whole show eventually. And then my managers at the time went back to the Tonight Show and asked if they'd put me back on. And the answer was, no, Johnny is very angry at Daniel. Oh. I went, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so insignificant. Why was he angry at me? But he was angry because I went up opposite. Oh. And for me, I just wanted to pay rent. It was a gig. I, I could, like, buy food every week. He was that kind of guy. He was amazing and brilliant. You, you guys did The Tonight Show. Yeah, we did it, we did it twice. And Jim McCauley was also the one who booked us. Yeah, but it was a weird scene. It was, they had been, all the same group of people had been working together for like 35 years. And you'd think it was this friendly place, but it was kind of all compartmentalized into cliques. And I think they each hated each other. There was a similar thing when I later did The Price is Right. It's odd when people work together that many years. But that, all that exposure, I also remember you on uh, probably one of the first appearances of The Simpsons. You were on the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah, the very first Tracy Ullman show, which also was the very first time America ever saw The Simpsons. On that, I did the, I just did two minutes. I remember I was in a tuxedo and it was just, I think I just did clubs. I think I yeah. only did four, three and four clubs, but... When I look back at that one, it was like the best juggling I ever did in that moment. It doesn't even look real. When I look at it, I go, how did I do that? I was so into Bobby May. It was really a tribute to Bobby May. You did the four club splits, and you did like four club triple singles, and you did five a lot. I mean, not on that appearance, remember you did five clubs a lot on shows. Yeah, but this one, and then I would end with the two up, two up, two up as you move around in a circle and then side to side and side to side, and then that one really far catch, just like Bobby May did. I love Bobby May. Yeah, yeah, we saw those videos. I mean, his style was so... Plus, he was American. He's like one of the only Americans you saw, him and Dick Franco, really. Yeah. I mean, on those videos. Yeah. Because we couldn't emulate Francis Brunn. That was pretty far out of our, uh, my comfort zone, at least, you know, with that kind of gymnastic. You were like Francis Brunn. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Yeah. You would do that kooky stuff. I did a lot of, I did the, like the balls and the combination stuff. Yeah. I did like the devil stick and the hats. I did everything pretty much oh, over oh, the years. I, I did those too. I was terrible on the hats, but devil sticks I was pretty good. Edward was better than me. Like you were, you were really good. Yeah, even Edward had one of the few good like routines. He actually had a little story that went with it. Yeah. There was a story. <laughs> there was a story. It was like a curse. I remember something was like Oogie Boogie was... Yeah, Oogie Boogie. I don't, I, I don't remember. <laughs> there was, I think, Edward made up that story and then I would do it and then I think it, it kind of grew and I don't even remember it anymore. Now, I'd probably be amiss not to mention Edward in the context of he's sort of a mystery, he's an enigma in that at a certain point he sort of chose to just drop out of juggling completely and have no contact with any jugglers. Well, I've done that too, but he did it even more. I still talk to my friends. And you're doing this. This is but fun. I, I don't know where Edward is. I, I, I mean, I know what city he's in. I believe he lives in Oxnard or Ventura, but I have no way to reach him. Yeah. I think I talked to him a few years ago. I wanted to ride up there on my motorcycle. Um, I hope he's okay. We were. He would be my oldest friend in the world. Yeah, I mean, he was a great, great juggler. And so, yeah. the other guy, so ahead of his time and 
Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, there's only like one spot of him that exists on YouTube. I think it's from Comic Strip Live. And there's so much comedy packed into that spot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure the others. He did John Davidson. He did, I think he did Merv Griffin. Yes. Oh, he, he definitely did, did Merv Griffin. Griffin. That's the one where he, he did the double pirouette. Yeah. And I think that's one of those I was there playing the banjo when he'd do his three ball routine. That was Merv uh, Griffin because that's the one where he fell on his behind when he did the the spin. That, that was a famous one. We watched that over and over again to see him fall. Wow. I got to admit, we watched that over and over again. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he was really, really ahead of his time and really, really funny. So, I don't know. I hope he's okay. Yeah, I, I, I had talked, I think, to his wife. Um, I don't know. They were going back six or seven years now. And she sounded great, and I thought I'd actually have a chance to talk with him, but uh, nope. So, yeah, I wish him the best. If somehow he stumbles upon this, I mean, nothing but good... Good wishes and goodwill towards him, you know? Yeah. Uh, send me a note, Edward. I'll come up on my motorcycle. We'll have lunch. Hey, so all, all these TV appearances, I know for us, did they lead to, like, opening act spots? Did you work, you work with lots of celebrities, I remember, like Julio Iglesias, I remember? Oh, yeah, lots and lots of them. Oh. You know, my mind kind of goes blank. I mean, who was the nicest? Who, who do you think, like, you met some celebrity, like, oh, my God, that's... That guy turned out to be really oh, nice. Oh, little Richard. Richard. Little Richard was so cool. He was the architect of rock and roll. He was. He was. Uh, along with Chuck Berry. Now, I worked with Chuck Berry, too. Chuck Berry was, was not very nice. <laughs> but little Richard was amazing. And stuff went wrong in his show. Like a curtain. He's on the piano. And a curtain started to, to close on him. And he turned it into the funniest bit. And, um, oh, it was just amazing. He, he did lots of comedy. Yeah, it was really, what a character. He's brilliant. Always full, full face of makeup, too. I saw him in the airport one time. Always fully made up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what? I honestly can't remember. I did open for an awful lot of people. A few of them were very, very nice. And, oh, who's the, you know who else was super nice? Who's the guy who sings Chances Are, Chances Are... Because I wear Johnny my... Mathis. Johnny Mathis, so nice, so oh, he nice. He was a big star too, Johnny Mathis. Yeah, I blew it with him because he asked me if I played golf, and I was honest, and I said no. And ever since then, Gary Muldeer's got the gig because um, Gary Muldeer plays golf, but Gary Muldeer is brilliant. Another, he's a great guy too, Gary. Yeah, Muldeer. really, really great guy. What about some venues? Any venues standing like big places that you remember? Yeah, uh, the, I worked all the big places I ever dreamed of. Radio City Music Hall, Caesars Palace. I remember driving all night and then getting there and seeing my name in lights. It was really exciting. And then I almost got in a wreck. <laughs> <laughs> right, looking up at the side. Yeah, um, I don't know, all those places. Um, um, Who did you do Radio City Music Hall with? I, we, we never did that one. That was with Julio Iglesias. Yeah. Was that a long tour with him, like, or a series of dates? It'd be series of dates. It, it, it That lasted for a couple years, but it wasn't really like, hey, you're on the bus or something and going to a million cities. It'd be, you know, come to three cities, and then he'd take off. Then he'd do uh, a couple weeks in Vegas or wherever and then take off. They were just, like, hit and run kind of thing. But Radio City Music Hall was amazing and horrible. That was the other time I cried. Um, <laughs> okay, why'd you cry? Um, opening night, they, you know, when you're juggling on stage and the lights are just from the front, 
Oh, yeah. You can't see nothing. And so I'd always need some kind of lights on the side, and I'd say, could they please be like pink and blue because then my skin will look nice, but I'll at least see what I'm throwing in the air. But there, no. There was like just a little crappy wash and this very narrow space in front of the curtain because all the cool lights were behind the curtain for him. But then the worst part was I go, where's my microphone? And they went, you don't get one. Ooh. And Radio City Music Hall is huge. There's like balconies that go on for days. And I had to go out there opening. I was, it was, I think we were there for a week. They want you to scream? They didn't even give you a microphone? No microphone. I had to scream my guts out. Oh, that was, I would they try too, for me. sure. Oh yeah, they couldn't hear me. And they were just yelling, get off, we want Julio, get off. Julio, I love Julio. And then I couldn't see what I was doing either. So I think I probably dropped a lot or I'd have to turn my back to the audience to do something hard. It was just stupid. But then by the next night, they found a microphone and they found some extra lights. And then the rest of the week went great. Uh, yeah, but it was that was brutal. Mm. I, I can picture it in my mind. It does not sound pretty. No, it was ugly. It was ugly, ugly. It was just that whole unpredictableness. I did so many years on cruise ships. And, you know, it, whatever gig you have, it's... And those corporate dates, they would pay really well, but some of them would be the most horrific shows. Uh, sometimes 7 in the morning. Uh, one time I opened for a Buick <laughs> at some car show. Yeah, they were just always dreadful. And you'd, to get this big money and feel like a whore... I don't want to say I can uh, relate, Dan, but I, I relate very much. To... I know. You guys were the king of corporate. Well, I think we, you'd have to split it. Let's put it that way. So I think you're doing pretty good. There, there was a time where it was, it was really good. I don't know if those exist so much anymore. Maybe. The economy's doing good, so it's probably all back. But uh, it was just so unpredictable. That's the part I didn't like. You know, you... Uh, you might kill one night and then another night in a bad situation is just a disaster. And doing really hard juggling under pressure really sucks. Yeah, it has that element, uh, like you say, of unpredictability where I could really do badly. Like, I think most comedians, at least they think, well, I won't be dropping all over the place, at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. the juggler has that other element of, I could also be embarrassed by having to pick things up and I'm doing badly in my craft and... But you make it funny. The only one I, that Albert never dropped and Anthony Gatto never dropped. Uh, those are the guys from my era. I'm sure there are guys now who never drop. Uh, but I dropped a lot. Uh, so <laughs> I'd make it funny, but it was just so much pressure and the gigs got bigger and the pressure mounted and, and increased. And I remember I would get this stage fright. Even, you know, when I was off doing cruise ships, I'd know I was leaving in a week. Oh, and right. The stage fright would start a week before the gig. And it would build up and build up and build up until walking out on that stage. And then it'd always be fine, as you know. Sure. But, yeah. And afterward, you feel good. Afterward, you had that relief of, oh, that wasn't so bad, or that was actually yeah. good. Yeah. Some of those cruise ship gigs were so ugly. The ones in Alaska with people that are a million years old and they would have <laughs> and they have you on after midnight and there's early tours. So there's only a few people and crickets in the audience. Old yeah. people and their parents, they would say, right? Old yeah. People yeah. And their parents. Old people and their parents. 
Did you like acting better? Because you also did a, a bunch of acting. Was that better for you? Because you did what? Uh, Nash Bridges as a, a reoccurring character? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was fun. They were, at that point, I had realized all my tape looked old. The Johnny Carson and all that stuff made me look really, really old. So I threw everything out and I made this homemade looking tape that looked like a guy who had done nothing but was ready to be discovered. And so it looked, I dressed like I crawled out of the garbage. Yeah, and, and out I, of the dumpster, right? Yeah, yeah. And all my props were made out of garbage. And then I made a, I hired a writer to write a bio that said that my, uh, that I, I grew up on the streets of LA, raised by wild dogs, and that I'd practice my juggling for homeless people who would show their appreciation by throwing garbage at me. And that my manager, Rick Marcelli, discovered me sleeping in his car. The first people we sent this weird homemade looking tape, I and mean, we, we purposely made the tape look so crappy and, and, and distressed and just rough. And the first people we sent it to was Nash Bridges people because they were casting this, this one-time role. They saw that and they thought I was that guy. They thought I really was sleeping in people's cars and they started writing in parts of my act. So, like, I get arrested, but I do part of my act in the, the police station, or they're chasing me, and I've got the suits that dance with me. <laughs> it was just silly. And I'd have, like, white spiky hair and weird funky earrings everywhere. So it was fun. That was fun. But then uh, one day I got a, the script. I, it, was, it turned out to be a very big role. And I remember I, got, I panicked, and my back seized up. <laughs> I didn't do well with the, and I spent the next few days on my back, uh, just from the nerves of it. I, I never did well with the nerves uh, and the dropping and the trying to not drop and the pressure of the gig. I'm really happy to not be doing that anymore. I had a funny gig that turned into a very long gig where I was the announcer of The Price is Right. It started out, initially I was juggling and doing all that stuff in there, but they kept saying, leave that stuff. Don't, don't get those turkey legs out of here. Right. <laughs> and because uh, I'd have the turkey legs that I'd juggle and my banjo and all this crazy stuff stuffed into my podium. And then sure enough, opening <laughs> night, this was in Reno, we opened this, and opening night, after reprimanding me for having the not having my juggling, he didn't want juggling stuff anywhere. He was very adamant, the producer. And opening night, all the com the show depended on computers, and the computers crashed. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing. There goes the producer, Andrew Felsher, racing through the audience, going, "Where are those turkey legs? Where are those turkey legs?" <laughs> And I ended up doing my act and filling with all the juggling while they fixed the computers. Opening night. But you were, you were an announcer in a show in the UK, too. You worked with uh, oh, David Strauss the, the Ventura yeah. for a couple of yeah. couple seasons that, or that was the, I was the musical director, actually. What happened was I broke up with this girl, uh, but right before I broke up with her, I started buying music software. I didn't know why, but I kept thinking, just like with Ice Cabades, I kept thinking, I have to buy as much music software as I can. And so I kept buying music software, and then when she dumped me, I made all these songs, strange songs with her phone messages and car sounds and my manager, Rick, saying, where are you? I see your car there, but just pick up the phone. And I'm like making made these weird uh, songs out of just strange sounds. And then later on, when I was over the breakup and I was showing him what I was doing, I said, you got to hear this weird stuff I was making. And 
I played it for him. This was like long before Fat Boy Slim. It was kind of like that stuff. And it was called Breakbeat. I mean, one song was just car sounds, but it was a whole song. Anyways, I, sh I played him this really crazy message with phone, phone messages. And at that time, he was getting ready to produce Strassman in UK. And he heard these weird songs that I was just showing him like, hey, listen to how crazy I was. <laughs> and he said, we're doing Strassman in the UK. You should be the uh, musical director. And next thing I know, I'm in England. And I'm like writing music every day and playing people on. And again, I was the guy from the garbage. And I had all these computers. And it looked like everything was made out of just crap that I had found. And that I slept there on the set. And then would make this crazy music that would fit each. I custom wrote a song for each person who would come on out of songs that made sense. And we had crazy guests like Lorena Bobbitt. And uh, it was amazing. And Strassman, he was famous because he had uh, Chuck Wood, the, yes. the, the, the ventriloquist puppet that came alive. Like, he was the first guy to do that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. He would call it puppetronics. It was amazing. He had all kinds of early robotics, long before anybody. Uh, and he was very, very, very funny. Um, he was a huge star in England and a huge star in Australia because they, they would really like that. It, 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 Amazing Jonathan had a similar career path where he was huge uh, in Australia because it was that style where they call it taking the mick out of someone. Right. Where you pull somebody out of the audience and do terrible things to them or you're really mean to them. And so it was that kind of style. I loved Amazing Jonathan. So anyway, so that was that. And then I, I kept getting these announcing jobs. I don't know why. But the Price is Right one, that started as like a road show of The Price is Right, but then in the middle of like two or three months into it, the longtime announcer, Rod Roddy, who had done The, the uh, Price is Right for like 30 years, he died. And so then I'm doing The Tonight, uh, no, sorry, then I'm doing The Price is Right. You're doing the TV version, so you start the live version, oh, and now yeah, you all yeah, of a sudden yeah, move yeah. the... Yeah, I just, so I was doing that, and the live version, and on and I worked on and off for them for about 10 years. It enabled me to get a house. Oh, but then, okay, so that brings me to what happened to me that made me leave all of this. Okay. I bought this house, and it was this really messed up house. It's all I could afford uh, in Culver City. It had holes in the floor. You could see the dirt. And I lived there with no kitchen and no bathroom for seven months while I tried to do all this work myself. And then in between, I'd leave to go do gigs. And I rang up all my credit cards, but that was fine because I had good credit. And then one day, once my credit cards were all rung up, all of a sudden my bills doubled overnight. And I thought, why is this happening? And I called the credit card company and they said, this happened because you have bad credit. I said, no, I have great credit. And they said, well, you better call the bank with your mortgage because that's who's reporting this bad thing. And it turned out that the bank I had two loans, a big loan and then a little tiny home equity loan. And they were at the same bank. And some clerk, maybe he hiccuped or something as he was typing. I don't know. Farted. Who knows? Right. But he ended up typing the same amount for both. So it made me look like I was 400-something thousand dollars over a revolving line of credit, which oh. is what a HELOC is. So it made me look like a disaster. It sent up red flags everywhere. And all my bills shot up overnight and right, I didn't so have a gig. Was ruined because of this, this mistake. Yeah, yeah. And, and I couldn't afford it. I called that bank in a panic 
And they said, oh, yeah, sorry, we'll fix it. But they couldn't fix the domino effect on all the other accounts. So then I, for months, I'm trying to fix my credit, and I'm back at the prices right, and I'm calling creditors and trying to convince them that this was a mistake and that I'm using the prices right offices to do all of this and keeping notes on scraps of paper and who I'm talking to and what's said and writing letters. And it was so much repetitive work. I thought, I bet there's software for this. And I kept looking for software for credit repair, and there wasn't any. And that's when I thought, aha, this is my way out of show business. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, but, but I didn't know anything about programming. So it was sort of like the guy in Close Encounters who keeps drawing that mountain. Yeah. That he's making it out of mashed potatoes. That was me. I, I had this program in my head, and I just kept drawing it over and over again, hoping I'd figure out how to learn it. I mean, how to how to learn the programming to make it. And that took like for three years. I was drawing it over and over again, like a weirdo. Finally, and learning different programming languages. None of them. I'd get six months into one, and I'd realize it wasn't right. And that's when I finally figured out to hire somebody. And then I built this little tiny software download that'd be $19.99 and people could fix their credit. And it fixed my credit. It fixed my manager Rick's credit. And I thought, oh, I'm going to make a gold mine. And then I launched it. And it's such a rough business. In a good month, I could make a couple hundred dollars. So it was really rough. But then mortgage brokers and auto dealers started wanting bigger versions for their clients. And then now, years later, it's grown like a giant foil ball, and it's now cloud business services. People run businesses on it. We have thousands of companies, uh, and I've got about 30 people that work for me. And, you know, I get to work in my bathrobe, and I make videos in my kitchen, and I help people with their businesses, but it's all show business. There's comedy, it's show business, but I don't have to go on the road. And there's no pressure because we make something and we fix it until it's right. And then it's out there. There isn't that pressure of walking out on stage and going, am I going to screw everything up tonight? Or is it going to work? Am I going to kill? Am I going to suck? I don't know from business. I didn't graduate high school. But I read a lot and I just take everything I know from show business and use it in this new thing. And it's just as creative, and I really, really like it. But I am starting to speak now at uh, startup events, and and we're having a conference here. And I juggle; I start to juggle, and I tell this story of how I got into this. And it's a funny, weird story because it's always for entrepreneurs, and they don't they don't know show business, and it really shocks them when I start to juggle. Man, this is one of the best success stories I've ever heard, Dan- Daniel. It's just it's just so it's so great. I'm so glad that you ended up. Uh with this sort of second chapter that's so exciting and big for you. Yeah. Fantastic, you know? It's really fun. I mean, we have customers. We're doing very well. We have customers who make millions of dollars. It's really neat, and it changes lives. And now I'm getting into charities and helping with financial literacy. And I just, I love it. It's really making a difference. And I, I didn't feel like I did that enough in my juggling career. I could do another hour with you. You're, you're so great. It's so nice to connect with you and everything. I just realized that, that on these podcasts, I try to be more interested than interesting. And you are one of the most interesting people ever, Daniel. You're, you're the man. Oh. This, this, was like, this is one of my favorite podcasts, I think, of all the 55. Oh. Well, I'm your biggest fan. Ever since I first met you, and I think we were, what, by then 12? 
maybe 13. You were cooking at Raldo's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Flippin' burgers. Flippin' burgers. I was about 16, 17 back then, yeah. Oh, you were? Okay. We were pretty young. Yeah. It was amazing times. I know. That's what I saw in my life. I mean, there's so few people that if you look back, like, in this sort of journey through juggling that we had in those 80s and 90s, the early days of the IJA, the yeah. got from a young boy to this amazing juggler and the new vaudeville and the butterfly man and just so many crazy things we you know that whole era of opening acts and showbiz yeah flying karamazov brothers penn and teller all the people that came out of that Amazing. and now i don't know now we're we're you know we're both sort of uh elder statesmen i guess you know i know we're the old guys yeah. Hey, I'm glad you're doing so good, man. Do you still got, are you still the credit doctor? How do people find out about your services and where do we send them? Well, actually, I'm not the credit doctor anymore. That was the teeny tiny little thing. Another company sells that now. And we just concentrate on this thing called Credit Repair Cloud. So that's what it is. And so, like, I write books on that. I make videos. I give conferences, <laughs> speak. It's really funky and weird, but it's all show business. Hey, man, you, you found your thing, man. You found your niche and more yeah, power yeah. to you, yeah. Yeah, I really like it. It's it's really fun. Well, this has been really fun. I want to do this again. How about tomorrow? <laughs> okay, Dan. Hey, well, thanks for taking a break from running your, your empire there. And uh, let's, if I ever get down to L.A., which I do not as much, uh, let's do lunch, like they say. Let's go to Raldo's. <laughs> I think it's been torn down. But. Okay. Well, sounds good. We'll go to the, with one of those replacements, whatever, whatever's in its place. We'll go to Magnolia and Woodman. Yes. Okay, awesome. We'll meet okay. in the valley. Well, definitely let me know when you're coming. And this was really a lot of fun. And um, I'm excited to hear it. Thanks, Daniel. I'll send you a link when it's up. And thanks again for being on Drop Everything. Thanks again, the great Daniel Rosen. Oh, okay. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 55. Sorry it was a bit echoey on my side. We had a couple of technical problems, but we've worked those out. So future podcasts should sound pristine. A big thank you to Daniel Rosen for being such a great guest. Could have talked to Daniel for another hour. So many great stories and great times that we shared back in the early days of our show business careers. Hey, let's thank our sponsors, the IJA. And I found out the dates for that festival. July 16th through the 22nd in Springfield, Massachusetts. I don't know if I'm going to be there or not, but boy, what a great time we had last year. And I think people are really looking forward to this year in Springfield, Massachusetts. So good luck out there. Let's have a big shout out to our festival director, Noel Yi. All right, let's also thank Zing Toys, makers of the Zing Dama. Don't forget about the Ring Dama, which can be found at ringdama.com. That's the original wooden version of my skill toy. And also my new book, 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act. You can get it on Amazon.com or reach out to me personally on Facebook or email, danjuggle.gmail.com. Tell me you want it autographed or personalized, and I'll be glad to do that. All right, no more after amble, no more sponsorships. Let's just say, drop everything except when you're juggling.